Welcome to the Sprocket Podcast, where we are simplifying the good life. I'm Armando Luna. I'm Joan Pettit, broadcasting from our homes in Portland, Oregon, nestled in the heart of Cascadia. And I'm Aaron Flores. This is the show where we bring you somewhat irreverent conversations about the intricacies of thinking locally with a global perspective and enjoying the best that life has to offer along the way. And I am uh, still giggling, but let me say that we cover <laughs> bicycling, trains and transit, infrastructure, adventures, and today, parking with Tony Jordan yeah. of the Parking Reform Network. All right. How's it going, Aaron, Armando? How are y'all doing? I'm tired. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, uh... I wonder why. <laughs> you go first, Armando. So, I'm too tired to even yeah, start so this both conversation. Aaron and I joined the Bike Park Northwest, um, Pacific Northwest, PNW, I think it's PNW, um, adventure yep. ride yesterday. And I knew it was going to be a 40 miles. I don't know if I paid too much attention to the elevation. Um, but thank goodness, Lesson learned. Thank goodness people got, you know, and usually the first, the other ones were party paced, so they weren't quite as, uh, we weren't oh, quite yeah. as cranking it. And so this one was not going to be party paced, so it was going to be more of a regular. They, they warned us. They did they say, warned us. They totally warned we, us. we are going to be, we're not going to be party paced. We're going to be moving a little bit quicker. Uh, I wanted to coin the phrase purpose paced. But I don't know. I, like I don't know one. if that's applicable. Maybe just hammer time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it looks like a great route, though. You went all over what out to like Troutdale, out to the river. Yeah. That ice cream joint was pretty sweet. <gasps> Sugar Pine, right? Yeah. Sugar Pine Drive-In, I think. Yeah. Nice spot. Have you been there? Nice spot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did a ride there a couple summers ago. No kidding. Back yeah. in the before times. So I want to so. take that segment of the bike park ride and ride that sometime with just a few friends out to the Sugar Pine. Because um, that part that part of the ride was actually my favorite. It was mostly <laughs> easy. <laughs> did you go through town or did you go out along Marine Drive? We went out along Marine Drive. Oh, yeah, that's nice. Um, and then at some point... Uh, just along, what would you call that? Like a truck trail? Uh, access trail, probably. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, you just so. had the the two ruts where like someone's tires were, and then it's just grass on either side that's taller than you are on the bike. When I was doing, um, let's see, several years ago when I was training for a century and then doing lots of long rides, I would often go out yeah, I go out to what is that park there called? Auto, mm -hmm. auto. Is that the person's first name or last name? But there's that park past Troutdale, and then you can keep going up the like historic Columbia River Highway up to like Vista Point, and it's it's right. great. But then you get some elevation when you start doing that. But it's so not. I've yeah. never taken that northern part of it. I've always gone in like from Stark Street, where mm -hmm. that through town merges. Yeah, through town. Um, so it's really beautiful <clears throat> and, um, the, the whole off-road thing is still kind of new to me and, and very novel. I, so I'm still enjoying that. Well, Even you on your fat yeah. bike, right? <laughs> yeah. Which I came home from work today and the, 
rear tire is like completely flat. Oh my god! So, <laughs> did you ever get a tube? I don't know. Maybe it's what's that? Yeah, I'm running a tube. Oh, did you uh, ever get a new one? Oh no, I haven't. <laughs> so, I'm actually I feel very lucky that it held out because uh, it was flat at work Friday, and I just pumped it up. I couldn't find a hole in the tube, so I'm. I just decided to press my luck. And to be clear, I wasn't even going to ride with the group. I'm going to confess now. I was not <laughs> intending on riding at all. But I knew deep down in the back of my head, like, my intention was, I'm just going to show up. I'm going to say hi to everybody. I'm gonna, I brought two dozen donuts from Coco for everybody. I'm just going to, like, do my, you know. Uh, Visit. Uh, say hello. Yeah, be say social. Hello. Do my celebrity appearance. Are sign you my, wait? Sign my autographs. You yeah, know, that it's a, it's a good it's a good it's a good gig if you can get it. You know the pay. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's great. <laughs> the, pay, the pay is amazing. <laughs> anyway, you bring donuts. That's <laughs> that's my pay. I, I brought someone. To, <laughs> I brought people donuts. I pay for the donuts. Uh, anyway, so that was like that conscious part of my head. That's that's what I was thinking. But deep down inside, I knew if I were to show up, I'm just going to ride with everybody. And Deep down, you knew that you were going to say hello, and then you were going to ride your bike for it, 40 miles. You know, <laughs> hello is my gateway drug. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> leads, well, that can, be, that can be a good way to motivate. I have a, a friend who, who used to tell me that when he didn't want to go for a run, he would tell himself, all right, I'm just going to put on my running clothes and walk to the mailbox, you know? And he said, and if I don't feel like going for a run by the time I get to the mailbox, I won't go. And then he'd always feel and like going for a the run. Mail and you're like, well, now I got the mail in my hand, so I'm not going to go for a run now. That's not what happened <laughs> to him. <laughs> Cause you can also get it on your way back from the oh, run. <laughs> oh, right. I thought you were going to say, Oh, I, I think I'm going to write some more letters. <laughs> yeah, I feel like some inside time today. Well, you get really great views of uh, Mount Hood going along Marine Drive. It's true. Yeah. yeah. It was a little hazy, but we still saw a few things. Um, I want to point out, while I rode the ride, Armando finished the ride. Oh, only because we were going to end at Mercado. <laughs> <laughs> And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't much longer. The only, I think the only distance difference between where you left the ride and where we continued to ride was riding up to Paul Butte. Yeah. That's pretty much it. Uh, I think if you just go by miles, it was, well, I, I tried to clock as much as I could. I don't have Strava or anything like that. So I just sort of Google mapped things. Um, and I ended up with about 44 miles. Um Wow, that's so. Yeah, all said and done, on a fat bike. Considering that you weren't really even planning to go for a ride, that's a particularly long ride. <laughs> yeah, and had like the world's longest bailout as well. Because your bailout was just as long as finishing the ride. Exactly. Is that what you're well, saying? Yeah. yeah. Well, is like Armando was saying. The only difference is we, me, and the two other guys that bailed out with me, we just didn't go up Powell Butte. But we still went along like the spring water and then had to head up north back to where we came from. 
But you did go up Tabor at the beginning when we did. We didn't go up Tabor. <laughs> oh yeah, my dumbass. <laughs> they said, "Hey, we're meeting at Tabor." I I didn't read carefully. I just was like, "Oh, okay." So they're gonna go meet by the York statue on Tabor, and uh, so I I got up there. No sooner did I get up there, and I take like one lap around to try to find everybody, then Armando calls. He's like, "Hey, where are you?" I was like, "I'm at, I'm at the top of Tabor." He's like, yeah, we're at the community garden down <laughs> at the base of Tabor. We're at sea level. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 rough. You did add a little bit. But then, uh, you know, you didn't make it to Tabor the day before, but I was on Tabor the day before oh, with yeah. Armando and ex-executive producer Brock. Nice to see him for the first time in person since I've been hosting. It was Brock so, Day. It was Brock Day. And you know who else was there? EJ and EJ's daughter, who I hadn't met before. So that was very exciting. And then who were the other people, Armando? Oh, there was, uh, wait, let me look at the credits. Let me look. There was, wait, where is it? Aaron Green. Author of Other We Were Like Sons and founder of the Regrainery. <laughs> I was, um, brought, they were like, oh, this is Aaron and this is so and so. And I was like, I wanted to be like, what's your last name? And then, and then, yeah, somebody, somebody filled me in. And then somebody else who's a supporter was there too. Not that that's what matters, but it was folks who I hadn't met before. I Joan, can't Joan, did you know, notice that Aaron Green, author of We Were Like Sons, was actually wearing his We Were Like Sons t shirt? No, I did not. Oh know my that. gosh, that's hilarious! <laughs> I oh, did Joan, not you're such a rock star, notice. total rock star move. We were all quite far apart from each other, you know. Still keeping right. space. Yeah, yeah. So, who is wasn't who? Who are the other folks there? Armando, uh, Kyle. Do you I, um, I'm spacing on his last name right now, and. Uh, Ilif and Claire showed up. Right. And they brought donuts. They brought donuts. (laughs) Speaking of donuts. (laughs) Yeah, it looks like that was a fun day. It was nice to see. Oh, you know, Brock was there. (laughs) Oh, yeah, that guy. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it was nice to see Brock. Thanks, Brock. And then uh, he rode town from Tabor up to Rocky Butte. And that's where I met up with him. Mm -hmm. Also on the fat bike. Nice. So yeah. you were doing, you did, you hit all, you didn't hit all the, be- you hit many of the in-town. I hit a couple uh, of the peaks. Yeah. You, hit, you hit them. Yeah. No wonder um, you're tired. I'm, <laughs> I'm ready to put the fat bike away for a while. <laughs> so no way to like, get air back in that tire. <laughs> yep. Uh, looks like it's going to be. I uh, guess it's out. I have to wait till <laughs> next season. Uh, it's, you don't really notice it going through town. But uh, after after a few miles, like it really wore on me. <laughs> that's a hard. Like, that's it's not, not. It's it's lighter than my than my regular like everything bike, my disc trucker. But it felt very heavy by the end. <laughs> yeah, and it's interesting because I was looking at some of the video that they posted or some little snippets and. Uh-huh. There were definitely some sections where I don't know if I, I don't know if I would have felt super comfortable in my regular, with my regular road tires, with my regular oh, no. slicks. 
Yeah. yeah. You, you would not. So uh, that's a lot of miles to also be on like, you know, a gravel bike. I mean, not if we did a, like a quick, like through ride through uh, gateway green. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. oh, that's maybe what I saw. Okay. That, that is where those fat tires shined. I loved that. Mm-hmm. Well, hey, look, I think uh, Tony is joining us here. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome, Tony. Tony, so you are the co founder and president of the Parking Reform Network. And uh, how else would you introduce yourself? I know, I know that's a relatively newer thing in your life. I also saw that you used to be a labor organizer. Yeah. Is that right? So, Is that right? Yeah, I worked for a number of years for, uh, I worked in, when I, after I got out of school at Santa Cruz, I worked for uh, 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 organization, University Professional Technical Employees, up DCWA, as an internal organizer. And then I worked on a, a campaign here in Portland uh, for the AFT, trying to organize nurses at Legacy Health System uh, for a few years um, back 2004 or so, but I learned a lot of skills at those jobs that apply to activism for sure. Um, so yeah, I, you know, I think right now I'm a, a parking reformer, but you know, I've also done housing advocacy here in town in Portland, uh, zoning stuff. I ride a bike, um, and got, I'm a parent. Mm, I don't know. That's me. Well, <laughs> well, can you tell us about, so you sent me, um, several links to things, um, and we'll include them in our show notes, but can you just tell kind of the version of the story of how you got interested in, in parking and like, yeah, the, basically that story, like how you got into it, what, what you learned and, and how that led to the parking reform network, which is relatively new as an organization. Right? About two years. Yeah. Although it's a, yeah. So um, I'll try and make it brief. Uh, I, you know, I actually, That's okay. I we got a, time. <laughs> if you're familiar with a, a blog called Metafilter, or it's like a, a community blog, a, a website, Metafilter, uh, it's old internet kind of, or, you know, um, in 2010, I came across a post on there that was about, uh, this about parking. It was like parking costs a lot and, uh, and no one knows that. And I, and I, so I read the post and it mentioned someone in the comments mentioned, uh, this book called the high cost of free parking by a professor at UCLA, Don Shoup, now retired, but still teaching. Um, and I went and got the book. I actually had to get it from, uh, my wife had to get it from interlibrary loan because they didn't have a copy at the Multnomah, uh, library system and I got it and I, and it was like, it's like 700 pages. I could go get it, but I mean, it's, you know, thick. And, uh, and I started reading it and I, and I read the whole thing. I, I, I often say it was like, kind of like, I imagine what, um, reading the jungle might've been like, you know, while you're eating a hamburger, you know, it's like all of a sudden I, I, I realized, wow, like this, this thing I never thought of is really important. And I read the whole book and, uh, then uh, that was in 2010, you know, later half of 2010. And then around 2012 uh, in Portland on Division Street they, and on Division and I think Williams, um, there were a number of developments, uh, new housing developments, apartments going up that had little to no parking. Portland had actually in 2002 passed a law or uh, changed their code so that on corridors near transit, you didn't have to have parking 
um, off street parking built into an apartment. Uh, but no one really built much with it. But then 2012, uh, coming out of the recession, it just, we started to see a bunch of these apartment buildings being built and neighbors started getting mad. And I was chair of the Sunnyside neighborhood, which is near division street. And I started going to planning commission and getting involved and saying, Hey, I read this book. I'm an expert. We shouldn't do this. This is bad. It makes housing more expensive. And I met other people, uh, in town, um, and who were interested in this type of thing. And we lost the city actually added parking requirements back in, they were pretty low, but they did. And then, but I, I kind of just kept going with it. I got on a committee, I got named to a couple committees at that point, and then learned more about it, made more connections. And then 2016, they tried to add parking requirements to Northwest Portland. Uh, and we pushed back and stopped that. Um, and around, I guess I skipped a step, which somewhere in here, you know, I was on a committee and we had worked on this parking policy and I was like, how's this going to get passed? Who's going to do it? And I realized I have some organizing skills, um, you know, like I can apply those and just I set up a website called uh, PDX Chupistas at the time, which became Portlanders for Parking Reform and started just like getting a mailing list together, writing blog posts. We had some events. Um, I reached out to Bike Loud and to other organizations and was like, hey, you know, parking is important. It, uh, you know, you might not know it, but like it impacts your, your, what you're interested in. Um, I worked a bit with, uh, in 2016 with Margot Black um, from Portland Tenants United. That was a lot of how we got the, them to stop trying to put them parking minimums in Northwest. Um, and so from there, it just kind of kept rolling got wrapped up in the residential infill project, et cetera. But as Portland got better, uh, I, I thought, you know, one of the things I saw was missing was this kind of direct advocacy, like anyone, like this was an issue that a lot of people kind of knew about at that point, the shoot book was getting more and more popular and, and you'd see like vox.com would do a, a, a video on her there, you know, the Rolling Stone article, but it still wasn't like, there was no one, no organizations were like, parking's our thing. We're going to, we're going to really just focus on educating and, and organizing around this. And so I, uh, kind of set to doing so. Uh, and then in 20, I guess from 2018, I, uh, met some other folks who were working in Chicago on parking policy and, um, I think 2019 around then is when we, we started the process of incorporating as a 501c3. And then really last year around April, we kicked off the parking reform network, like started signing up members. And at this point we have about 200 members around the country, a couple in Canada, several in Canada, a couple in Australia is one guy, Paul Barter in Singapore. And we're still just kind of like figuring out how to, you know, get it moving. We don't have, we're not funded, but you know, we're, we're we have a, a pretty good Slack channel where people elected officials and planners and advocates will all interface and share kind of share notes and people will be like, there's a process in Bend happening right now. Uh, and in Dallas and people from those communities are you know asking for advice when they're writing op-eds. So really just kind of like trying to kick it up a notch and providing a platform for sharing information and like a, a central place for uh the the stuff that i think would have helped me when i started to become a better uh advocate um well first i just want to say i i'm super excited that you got inspired to do all this through metafilter i don't know that i'm so i'm 
I different times I've been more or less active on Metafilter, but it's interesting because I never know who that I know is there. And I was like, oh, do I know you there? Anyway, um, but I just found the... I found the thread really easily. So we'll link to that in the show notes. So that's great. That's great that that's where it started from. But um, so, boy, there's so much to talk about here. So with um, with parking and the work that you're, oh, well, and also I wanted to say uh, Henry Grabar, who, of course, we had on the show last month, is writing a whole book now about parking, which yes. is uh, you know, I mean, I know it's not, obviously it's not the first, but that's, you know, a big deal that, that there's people who are engaged enough in this issue want to write about it and, and read about it. But yes. can you talk specifically about how parking relates to bikes and public transportation and active transportation and how these things all intermingle? Because I think we tend not to think you know, it's like parking is something that is everywhere that you cannot really think about at all in a sort of policy or systemic way, right? And if you're not, even if you're using it and biking and all this sort of stuff. Right. You need it to go out to dinner, right? No, Aaron, there are other ways. <laughs> there are other ways that Tony's going to tell us. Well, you know, so, so I mean, yeah, I should mention Henry is a member of the Parking Reform Network, and uh, I think we'll be mentioned in that book when it comes out. I think we're playing a role in it. Um, the uh, So when it comes, I mean, I think one of the core things is just space. A lot of people don't think about the space that the parking takes up. Um, obviously, they use it. When I was, a, when I had a car, and even when I didn't have a car before I learned about parking, I, I, I kind of, you know, you just assume it's there. You're mad when it's not there where you want it. You don't like to pay for it, but you don't, you, very few people, I think, just naturally realize, wow, like this is 300 square feet of, you know, space that I have dedicated to this car. And when my car is not there is 300 square feet that just sits you know, empty waiting, usually, usually exclusively for that use of, of parking my car. Um, and so I think that, that the, the main impact, well, there's two impacts, I think, uh, I'll probably come up with more, but two that I think can think of can really impact cycling after transportation. Uh, so there's obviously allocation of the right of way, you know, when we want to build, we don't, 28th street in Portland or any other street anywhere else in the world where someone wants a bike lane or scooter parking or a bus lane or anything, you're, con you're, you have to contend with the desire of people to park their car for free there. And uh, usually that's an unpriced, uh, it's a subsidy for people who are driving. Um, it's, it's kind of, you know, no, they don't pay for it. Um, they benefit from it when they're driving, but it makes it very difficult then to take it away because there's no, there's no, there's no, both no value and like a priceless value of this, this curb zone. Um, so if you want to, if you, if you do want to, to have a better allocation of right of way, you have to work on parking policy. Um, so that's one big part. The other part is just our whole car centric, uh, development patterns and, and, and the people, op, people's options and, and what is the easiest way they're going to get around. So if you're trying to build power, if you're trying to build uh, momentum for, for alternate modes, you need users, you need people who are willing to take those modes. And if the easiest thing, if the cheapest 
it's not only the easiest, like the most convenient and the cheapest thing to do is to drive your car somewhere and park subsidized, um, then you're, it's, it's a harder sell to like get on your bike and move and maybe be in the weather or to take the bus and have take a longer time and be on the bus with people who you don't know, like that's, that's a stretch. And so if we're, if we're, if we're prioritizing, uh, automobile traffic travel, then, you know, we, then we're not going to see the mode shift and the investments that we need to, to get these other things working. And one of the core, uh, one of the best ways to, to change how people, like how people choose to go around or how we build our environment is to fix our parking policy. I mean, it it doesn't fix it automatically, but you really can't fix a lot of these problems if you maintain the status quo of requiring parking everywhere, not charging for on-street parking, treating parking as a sacred, you know, like thing that you can't take away. If, If all those status quo kind of policies we've had for the last 50 years are in place, then making progress on housing affordability or multimodal transit transportation or traffic violence is all going to be very difficult to do. So this is like a a cross-cutting foundational policy area. So I think one of the big things that I probably hadn't thought about before, and I learned about probably from following you on Twitter uh, for a long time, is that a lot of us without sort of questioning it, if we're not in a super urban area, have like sort of thought of the parking, the city space, the public space that is directly in front of our house as ours, as belonging Mm -hmm. to us. And sometimes, you know, we're irritated when somebody is in our parking space. Um, Even if we're, you know, trying not to be we still you know um and so i mean it seems to me like that's one of the big shifts that kind of has to happen right for people to sort of start thinking of of um the roadway that's in front of their house where cars sometimes park not as sort of belonging to them i mean does that seem to be a big sort of obstacle in all of this or is it more Right. Is it parking in streets? Is it parking lots? All of the above? I mean, it's kind of all of the above, but I think to your point, like, well, I guess one thing to consider is that in most cities, by especially American cities with our type of zoning, we have, you know, a lot of residential single family zoning compared to the, you know, multifamily, which is usually clustered or in corridors. Um, the, one of the secret, one of the, one of the one of the things really is that very few places actually have a true parking problem. I mean, their parking problem is there's too much parking. That's the problem. The problem is not that there's not enough, and and most most people around their homes, you know, like really do have plenty of parking. Most 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 homes in the United States have a driveway, you know, and then there's that's a curb cut they have. That's like an exclusive space, but then there's usually two or three spaces behind like up on the driveway and then you've got the space in front of the house and the one across there's a lot of parking. It's just around these areas, you know, where maybe you have multifamily housing or 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 commercial uses around or spillover or or you know, other kinds of parking causes congestion that causes that frustration. Um, and, and so, so yes, I think that, you know, it's still, people do need to be, I think we need to stop the, the, there is, there is a process where I think 
people need to be educated or, or the cities need to do more to help people understand that parking is not actually theirs. Um, you know, and, and they, and, and, and that can happen through permitting or other, other ways of, of managing the on-street parking. But really in most places, you don't even need to do a permit because there's just no need to like, there's like, it's not congested around, around. I think one of the things we do need is around areas where there is commercial activity, like, you know, restaurant row or, you know, when we're allowing more apartments and we might see this in areas as cities start to like densify, like with Portland's residential project um, with um, Minneapolis passing uh, zoning reform to allow fourplexes, you know, then you'll start to see pockets where like someone builds a fourplex across the street and then they don't have to build parking. And then, yeah, there's going to probably be a couple extra cars on your street. But, um, but I, I think, you know, I, I, I think the, that it's, it's the people it's just that those those people who live near an area where they start to get spillover are often you know very loud and 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 they make so much noise that that seems like it's a huge problem and then there's this fear everyone thinks that there's not going to be parking when they you know right outside their their front door which is another part of it is we just need to get used to to maybe you know walking a few extra feet if you're able to which most people can you know like are willing to you know walk a little bit farther maybe to park their car sometimes well and then it, and then it also seems like yeah right well and then for people who can't do that making it easier for them to actually be able to you know get off the bus or whatever vehicle they have if they if they can't actually walk you know it gives yeah. them more room but it seems it seems like one of the big um pushbacks uh we get at least here in portland and i suspect this happens in other places is in in front of businesses if the city ever wants to remove parking to make especially if they want to remove parking well it seems to have been okay to remove parking to make restaurant seating like people haven't gotten mad about that right people people are liking that i guess because that business is using that and actually they can yeah right or like they can yeah, they remove one parking spot and then they have like six people sitting there. They could actually probably be parking six or 20 bikes. But it seems like when cities want to remove parking to put in bike lanes or maybe better bus lanes or whatever, like there's a lot of pushback from businesses even. And and my understanding is that the economics of that are that actually that's usually better for businesses? I mean, if we're just talking about them making money, but can you talk about that a little bit, like business reactions to this? And Yeah, and I mean, I think it is important to, to talk about the different uses because, I mean, th there are certainly studies that show, you know, that, that in areas where in many cities when they've implemented uh, parking, paid parking, um, usually, usually goes hand in hand in the United States with like what's called the parking benefit district. So you, you create a parking meter area and then you give some of that money you know, use that some of that money locally to improve some of the the business environment, whether it be by uh, making the street nicer, or sometimes finding you know wayfinding for parking, or you know might be transit subsidies for employees that work at the businesses. You usually put some of that money back in, and in areas where they've done that, and they have metrics like sales tax or other things to look at for business. Business usually does go up when they when they manage the on street parking better. So, like one one thing here, and this applies this this talks to some of our when we just briefly mentioned disability parking and and other access. You know, 
if you have congested parking, if everyone's parking there all the time, then it's frustrating for everyone. Cause if you just want to pop into the store, or even if you want to go have dinner, if you can't find a place to park, that's, you know, anywhere that's not good. So uh, one of the keys to parking management is to like increase the, a little bit of occupancy so that there's, there's like a space available near where you're going, you know, you have to pay for it, but it's there. So you can actually do what you're trying to do. Um, now I don't know about, and, and we know that bike parking, as you mentioned, you know, like people ride bikes like to spend money too. Um, sometimes they have extra money cause they don't have to pay for a car. Um, and, uh, or they might have a car, but you know, this, but the, the, that's, that's shown. There's some good studies, I think, and evidence that, that, you know, and also you're adding more consumers, as you mentioned, you can park 10, 15 bikes in the space of one car. I don't know about bus rapid transit lanes, you know, like you could argue if you're a business that has walk on traffic, you know, okay, you remove my parking and now there's a bus that comes down here. And if it doesn't stop near your business, you know, I don't know. I think, I don't know if there, I haven't seen anything to that regard, but, but I do think one of the keys is that if the parking is free, like I mentioned earlier, there's no real idea to know how much it really is worth. So how do you even know what you would compensate or how do you know, like who's actually parking there? Like, are your employees parking out in front of your business all day? Or is it your customers, you know, like, is, is the person, is it, is it an office worker, you know, like, is it any, you know, is this person spending any money in the, in the business district? And, and when you manage parking or, you know, which might come from removing some of it, you know, and, and, but, but when, once you're actively managing, you should, you're, you're trying to create a more vibrant business district. So I think that that, um, you know, plays against the, the concern of businesses, you know, at least as far as, managing removing you know i think yeah that's i i don't know i mean i, th I think a, a city if they're going to remove a a, a bus lane uh parking some vehicle parking for bus rapid transit um and there's very good reasons to do that and that's a great way to use your curb space you know how you know you might need to try to you know, make sure that the sidewalks are good so that people who get off the bus can walk back down or you know make sure that maybe you need to manage parking in the neighbor neighboring uh, you know neighborhood, so that a neighbors can still park when they come home if they need to, but also there's some available parking a block away to still bring the businesses in. So I think there's ways to manage that. And you brought up just to, to touch on the whole street seat thing is really yeah. It, I mean, I wonder it will be interesting to see what the after effect is that because like really it's it's going to change a lot. A business isn't going to be able to complain about losing the parking anymore if they've been using it for their, for their tables the whole time. Uh, so I think that, that that's, um, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's shown maybe some of those arguments weren't as heartfelt as they seemed. <laughs> right. Like it's fine when, as long as it's for them, you know, it's not just about parking though. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, so are there any, um, I, I, how much, if, if you were, if you all of a sudden were able to create parking policy for different places in, in either like in our city in Portland or for different places, like how many different kinds of, is it always, is the best way to manage parking, the best thing that cities could do, is it always different from place to place? Does it vary by neighborhood by neighborhood? Or are there some general like these are the five different good ways to do this that are pretty much going to apply in most urban and suburban, you know what I mean? Like how much does it vary? 
Well, I mean, I think it depends on what your end goal is, right? So my end goal is I am concerned about climate and housing affordability and traffic violence and equitable access to places of entertainment and opportunity. You know, like those are, that's, those are important things we need to do as a society, I think. And, uh, and if those are your goals, um, then I think that you, you know, um, Don Shoup has like this, they call this three-legged stool of like, you know, don't have parking minimums, uh, you know, uh, charge a right price for on-street parking and then reinvest the money in the neighborhood. And, and that's, that's kind of, I, I similarly, I, I kind of even break it down just to two things, which is like build less parking, um, and that you, you know, don't require it to be built. Um, don't spend public money on it. Uh, maybe even tax it when it's built. Um, and then use what you have more efficiently, you know, uh, so, so, you know, charge market rates for the parking, uh, require shared parking, um, where possible. Like, so, if, you know, like make it legal or even required for, for a business to, to share its parking with a residential building that might be built nearby. And I guess, you know, I mean, really, it's not, I am coming with two things because you also need to use the money uh, in a good way. But I think like, what, you know, if you read the high cost of free parking, that talks a lot about like, you know, these business improvement districts. And I think I'm a little more socially progressive potentially. So I would say, you know, you should be like, I, I would love to see money go like into cash rebates to low income household. If you have a permit district, you know, rather than getting a discount, like I always get in Northwest Portland, they, the permits cost like $190 a year. And if you walk in and say you're low income, they'll give it to you for $75, which is fine. But if you're low income and you don't have a car, then, you know, like there's not, there's a subsidy missing, you know, like there is now there's starting to have a low income, like, um, program for the transportation wallet. But like, I feel like, you know, the best thing would be to just give cash, cash rebates to low income households in neighborhoods where you're managing parking. And then they might spend the money on, you know, babysitting or food or biking or, you know, transit, whatever they want to spend it on. Um, usually cities are going to try and, you know, barring that transit subsidies or, you know, other transit improvements. So like, I, I really think we can be spending the money more ways to in, in ways that encourage people not to drive. So 30 years ago, you might set up a permit district and then, or a, a meter district, and then you're building a new parking garage. Like I'm not into that. You know, I'm like, you know, you build charge for the parking, but then use it to try and like reduce the amount of people who are driving because then you can repurpose the spaces for things like bus lanes and bike lanes. You know, um, I guess that kind of goes to the last question. Like, there's the key if you're trying, if you can, if you can show these businesses that you have a plan to bring people into the to the business district or the neighborhood in ways that aren't driving, then there's going to be less pushback when you want to repurpose the right away for something better. Yeah. So, Tony, would you say now the way the system is set up, we are paying people to drive rather than not paying than paying them not to drive? I mean, I think so. I, I think that, that, you know, there's a tremendous, our parking rates are pretty low. Um, if you look at the cost, like in our city of a, it's a little bit, I mean, the cost of a bus ticket relative to, you know, driving, especially when you count multiple people. I mean, if you're going on a date or taking your family, you have to pay for two bus tickets. You only have to pay for one parking space. So like, you know, it adds up pretty quick. And then our, our smart parks, which are cheaper than on street, and that's good, 
because you want people to use the parking garages if they can, you know, um, you know, it's even cheaper. So, and we don't even charge after seven o'clock. It's not like the bus stops charging uh, after seven o'clock, you know, but the parking does. So I think, you know, definitely um, we're, we're, we're still, you know, it's still, we're still making it very cheap, even though people think Portland is really like anti-car city. I mean, it's still the cheapest and most convenient way to get downtown is to drive a car with a couple people in it. It, that it that's uh that is really frustrating to me there are times when i'm going by myself but especially if i'm going with one of my kids where it wouldn't be it might take a little bit longer to take the bus but we're pretty close to downtown but when i say okay but what am i going to pay 10 bucks if we take the bus the two of us or whatever and i can go and park for a buck or two for that for the amount of time i'm going to be there and it really I mean, insure. I'm paying for a little bit of gas, and I pay per mile for my car insurance, but it doesn't add up, and it's it's kind of ridiculous because it should be, even if it takes a little, it should not be cheaper. It should not be cheaper for me to drive into the urban core than it is to take public transportation. And of course, I can ride my bike, but my kids not like my kids. They're not into biking, and if you know, let's say we're going to the doctor or something or whatever. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's it's. I sometimes add it up and it's like, nope, cheaper to drive, you know, and, and the community, and you have a trunk then too. So you, you don't have to carry all your stuff around. I mean, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, well, so this, somebody on Twitter, I don't know if you saw this. I asked folks if they had any questions for you and Courtney Cobbs from mm-hmm. full lane of, um, at full lane femme asked a super wonky question. Um, that and I don't know if you know the answer to it, but it's a really interesting way of thinking about it. And she said, "What's the best way to calculate the value of the land cities are subsidizing for free car storage?" Yeah, I saw that question. You know, Courtney's a, a member of. She spoke at our, our uh, annual member event last uh, uh, month, um, and, and and that's a, that's a good question. I I think um, well, the best way is to have your parking priced for, uh, performance, i.e., you know, what, what the, what the price for parking is that leaves one space available on every block face is the, in in an area where there's parking congestion, you know, then you can just kind of see how much revenue that space generates. And that's the, that's the value of a space. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, in some places, the value of a space as far as car parking, you know, might not be that much because there's really not a lot of people parking there. I, I like, I thought um, there's not a lot of, I've looked into this a little bit. There's not a lot of great um, metrics for this. I mean, obviously, you know, you can go dig into like how much does the city spend on maintaining that? That's a part of the road in most places, right? It's part of the street. It's got to be maintained when they repave you know, the street, there's a value in that. So, I mean, there's base costs. Um, I think if you look at what off-street parking costs, like a dedicated off-street parking costs in a neighborhood, and you like, you know, just to be fair, to be easy about it, cut it in half, right? You know, assuming that an on-street parking space is not as valuable as an off-street one, you know, it could get, car could get broken into and it's not always there for you. Um, you know, so so take it, like if, if parking off-street costs, $75. Well, then the on-street parking, you know, you figure it should cost 
$35 a month, you know, or something like that. And then you could multiply it, but I don't know. Um, I don't know if there's, I, I, there might be some, I don't know of any direct studies to do this, but those are some ways to kind of guess. I, I really like, like considering the off street parking, uh, you know, cost. Like if you were going to kind of spitball what a permit should cost in a neighborhood, um, I think that's a good way to kind of come at it uh, is to, to look at what it costs someone to rent a garage and cut it in half and start there, see what happens. I would happily, I think happily, I think I would happily pay for an on-street parking permit in my neighborhood if the money was going to something like, yeah, low uh, housing for folks who don't have very much money. You know what I mean? Like I would, I would write that check way much more happily than I've written some other checks to the city. So, Well, we have, I mean, Portland has in Northwest and Central East Side, those are two of the most innovative you know, not to talk about Portland so much, but I mean, we have two very great, I mean, you know, like the permit programs we have there, they're combined permit meter districts and the permits cost a fair, they cost a, a fair amount of money. So they're trying to actually come close to a market rate. Um, and a lot of that money goes into uh, these transportation wallets, which are, it's a Portland program where you get, you know, for a discount, um, you get a, uh, you know, a, some bus credit, uh, streetcar pass if you're in Northwest, some bike town credit. Um, it's like a package of mobility credits. And those come, if you live in the neighborhood, you can get them at a discount or work in the neighborhood, you get a discount. Now they have a low income version that there that looks great that like stacks with bike town for all. So like that money is, is at least somewhat going in a good place. In Northwest, I'd say better than Central East Side here because Central East Side wants to build a parking garage still someday. But, you know, like, um, so there are those in Portland, at least if we get new parking permit districts, they probably will be more designed like Northwest. Um, so maybe and, we'll get one someday. And and is that because he, because of your work and the work you've been doing in the city? I mean, right, like this is some of the impact you've been able to have by I, I hope, going deep on this. Issue. I hope so somewhat. I mean, I'm not on the Northwest Parking Committee, but I but I'll tell you when um, when we stopped at Planning Commission, the when we stopped when Planning Commission in 2016 said no, we're not going to recommend that they expand parking minimums into Northwest. Uh, the chair of the parking committee looked at me very, and was like, now you've done it. Now we're going to have to charge $70 a month for parking. And I was like, yeah, great. You know, and they, that's when they got serious about starting to raise their prices. So, I mean, like by, by putting up, by changing the, the, the narrative here in the town and uh, making it so like, I mean, I don't know if you watched the residential info project hearings, you know, but like people parking was not, a sympathetic argument to city council. It's not anymore. You can go tell our city council here and they will, they will, they will not be impressed that you can't park right in front of your house. And I think that, that we can do that in other cities. You know, you have to, it doesn't, you know, you just got to educate some people and get them to be as vocal. Now, you know, you're going to, your Peabot is just as likely to get heat for doing something that increases parking as they would be to remove it. And, um, and I hope that I've had something to do with that. Well, you are definitely applying a lot of that heat, though. I mean, like specifically, right? Like, yeah, yeah, but you you get a pile on, you know. Once you yeah, educated right. your friends, and they're gonna like that tweet, or they're gonna say something too, or you know, they're gonna write in a letter when you ask them to. So it really is just like you know, you gotta let people know 
the good news, how much it costs, how much parking costs, I mean, like you know, how much space it takes up. Somewhere. And one of the things that you wrote, I can't remember where I read it. You said that like every town should have a person who's going deep on parking, right? Who can be yeah. the person who's like, well, actually, let me tell you about parking minimums or whatever, whatever. And so, um, how, um, how can some, how can people figure out if there's somebody doing that already in their town, you know, or that's their, a, yeah. Good question. That's, and just to say that's Don Shoup says every town needs a Tony Jordan, you know, that's, uh, that's <laughs> yes, that's <laughs> right. My, my favorite. Every town here. needs a Tony Jordan. That's what um, a compliment. What a compliment. Yes. Right? You know, well, you're like, yeah, I read this thing on Metafilter 11 years ago. <laughs> Yeah, now I hang out with the guy. It's great. It's, you know, pick pick a, just to say he always uh, this is a digression, but he says when he got into parking research, it was like he was felt it was like no one was doing it. It was bottom feeding, so he could do a lot of research. There wasn't a lot of competition. One of the reasons I got into organizing here was I wasn't stepping on any toes. It was a green field, you know. So pick a, 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 a really random wonky area, and you can you know be friends with the top person in the field in no time, you know, it's like, you know, they're, they're not, it's not like I, I trying to meet Drake, you know, it's like, it's, it's pretty, you know, he'll, Don will respond to an email if you send it to him probably, you know, so it's, uh, it's so, uh, the and, Drake and, of parking, the Drake yeah, of parking. Yeah. Or he guess his website is shoot dog, I think. So it's like, you know, it's a, um, so, but, uh, as far as is someone doing it in your town, that's a, I mean, you know, well, part of what I'm hoping to do through the Parking Reform Network is inspire and, and help the people who are doing this in their town to be a little more bold and to like set up their Austinites for parking reform or Detroit, you know, whatever it is. So, you know, you might just search for your city name and parking reform or look for op-eds. Um, but hopefully at some point, you know, that's where, you know, my organization will come in is as a network for people who are interested in parking reform, you know, so I would say right now, if someone is in their city and wants to do parking reform, they should go to parkingreform.org and join us and get in the slack. And then I'm happy to look up who else is in your city that's a member or we can, you know, we start to, I'm following the news. So it's like, oh, I know that I've seen someone write an op-ed in your little town or there's someone in a city nearby. Um, so that's, that's the best way they should do it. <laughs> Hey, Tony, you mentioned, you talked a little bit about parking income. Um, one thing I have never thought about until I had to go and pay a ticket a couple of years ago and go inside the courthouse and pay my ticket is the humongous line of people paying their tickets of, you know, traffic citations, parking set, whatever. Yeah. How, where does that play a role in all of this? Yeah. So good, great question. Uh, so in Multnomah County, we spent, we, we split, I think most of our parking ticket revenue actually goes to the court system where it all go, it, it goes to the court system and then there's a kickback, which I think is good here because I think that disincentivizes, um, we don't try and use parking tickets, I think as much a revenue generator here. Uh, it's probably why we don't have good street cleaning because cities that want to generate revenue have regular street cleaning so they can ticket all the cars, you know, and, um, and <laughs> that's a, you know, I, so I'll tell you, um, ideally you're not giving any tickets away. Like I, parking tickets aren't how 
I mean, so first of all, parking management isn't, shouldn't be used to generate revenue for revenue's sake, right? You should manage your parking because it's a valuable and scarce resource that multiple people want and you want your system to work well. You want there to be good um, circulation on your roads. You want people not to be cruising and burning extra fossil fuels. You know, you want to figure out what that space is so you can figure out what the best use for it is. Um, so as far as parking tickets, like, you know, I, I, a lot of cities do and during the pandemic they saw reductions in their their revenue from parking tickets um but like i personally think like you know a system that's well managed and where you have like you're letting people do what they want like you know like if, if you're always giving people tickets for staying for more than two hours then maybe you should legalize paying for parking for more than two hours like you know like and so you're not giving away tickets um another reform we should do here and everywhere is you know find some way to tie the price of a ticket to something other than just everyone pays the same amount, like maybe the value of the car or the size, the length of the car or the, you know, the weight of the car should, you know, I think for traffic and parking tickets, you know, there should be some sort of a scale, which pro which usually ideally would kind of correspond roughly to income, you know, or value of the vehicle. Um, I don't know if that answers your question. Cause I don't know what everyone does with their parking money. I mean, I think some places it really is, the 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 enforcement revenue is just like a slush fund but um but yeah ideally no parking tickets no one likes them <laughs> yeah that's it uh okay so we have a another late breaking question from uh sean martinez at rescue you you i don't know how he pronounces that rescue you i guess is how he pronounces that but former Sprocket podcast guest Sean Martinez said with a bit of a wink, how many bicycles fit in two car parking spots? <laughs> oh, I mean, I, as many as you want, probably. <laughs> I'm going to guess. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. How many fit on the pile? Like, I mean, like a lot of. Yeah. Like Zubom style, <laughs> Zubom style. I, we, I mean, we've all, I'm sure we, you know, we've all been places where there are a lot of bikes piled up and I so I mean, you know, but you know, what does Peabot put probably like four staples on a parking four to six staples. So I think 12 is probably an average guess, you know, eight to 12, but really you could stack them up. Yeah, and Sean saying, Oh, but I have a cargo bike. So <laughs> well, that goes on the bottom of the stack. Yeah. You, yeah, you need more in the bucket. <laughs> so you can put the little kid bikes on in the cargo part of the, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, so, I mean, uh, do you feel like people, so I think that something that I hear and I, I, you, you talked about this a little bit, people getting mad that they can't find parking. And then I was telling you that I feel like the scenario that I hear sometimes from folks is that, you know, People are like thoughtful, progressive folks that maybe they don't drive that much. They take the bus or they ride their bike, but then they get, but then, you know, a new apartment complex goes up down the street and they, mm -hmm. they want there to be more affordable housing, but like sometimes, you know, new apartment complexes look really fancy and they cost way more than your mortgage. So you start 
thinking those those must be rich people if they're affording it not that those that's just all they could find or they're living with roommates or whatever but then what happens is that either there isn't parking there or the apartment complex is charging for parking and people don't want to pay for a parking spot so they park on the streets in the neighborhood and then people start to get really mad at like density and they get mad at not being able to park in maybe not their spot but not being able to park as easily as they used to. So, you know, but let's say that these are folks who like kind of want to understand this issue. What do you tell them? Well, um, I, 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 first I'd like to say it's interesting that you mentioned like the, the cost of the rent at the apartment versus your mortgage, because I think that the fr- one of the framings, although this probably isn't how I would start it is, you know, I mean, like people who have mortgage have a fixed housing cost. That's great, you know? And like, as the price of the, that apartment costs more because the land's appreciated and now your mortgage is still where it was, like, good for them. Um, but I digress. Yeah, and that could be a different <laughs> scenario in different cities. But I think that's a lot of times what we see here in Portland is that if you can't afford to buy a house, your mortgage is probably lower than than rent. Uh, my, right. I mean, my rent, if to rent my house would be a lot more than you know, my right. work. Yeah. yeah. So, so I, I think, so when I've, one of the, I, you know, I think that the first place I, I try to go with people is the cost. Like, do you know how much that parking costs to build? And most people don't. And so it's like, I mean, and it varies widely, but I mean, a, a kind of, you figure even paving surface area, you know, nowadays with like landscaping requirements, et cetera, is, you know, going to be, 10 to $20,000, you know, maybe eight, you know, eight, depending on what you have to do, how many stalls you're making and et cetera. But, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's not nothing to build a surface space and a structured parking space, you know, starts out, you know, Oh, it's just a tuck under, which might be like, you know, just like where you drive in under the apartments are above and you drive in, it's not really a garage, like a carport um, or, then moving into either above ground or underground structured parking, you know, it goes from like 20 to $60,000. I mean, the, the, the parking garage that they built by the convention center was like $60,000 a parking stall. Yeah. Right? For each parking, wait, $60,000 for each parking stall. Right. Yeah. So I mean, and you, let's say it's even 40. I mean, it's a tremendous number, right? Like, I mean, like, you know, there's a range here, but the fact is it's tens of thousands of dollars to build a parking stall. Now that's like, you know, it's not, it's partly because you can't just float a platform in space with a parking space. You know, it's like you have to build a ramp and you have to build walkways. You have to build all this stuff. So it takes up all this space and it's, and it's expensive. And, um, and so, and, and a general rule of thumb also, which I think a lot of people don't no, is like you can kind of just lop a couple zeros off. If this thing costs forty thousand dollars, that's four hundred dollars in rent that has to, you know, by financing. It's just a, a rough estimate. You figure this thing costs forty thousand to build, but the the whoever's renting that apartment needs to get four hundred dollars out of somebody to cover the cost of that parking space. And so, if it's just tied into your rent or the whole apartment complex, then everyone's just going to be paying extra amount for a parking space, whether they use it or not. Um, if it's unbundled, which is better, that's when you're talking about, they charge for it. Well, at least then if I don't have a car, I don't have to pay for it. But if the on-street parking near my house is free, of course I'm going to park there instead. That makes total sense. Uh, even if, if I move into an apartment that has no parking, and I, that's one of the arguments you hear a lot. Well, they said, you know, 70, all these people moved in. There's no parking there. Well, yeah, if I moved somewhere and I owned a car and I could park for free on the street, 
why would I sell the car? So like, I think, you know, the, the answer is like, you know, we have to, to manage that on-street parking, you know, that's how, you know, we, we get it fixed. But I think to, to talk to these, to, I think just the cost and then thinking about the, the space it takes up. So like it's an op- and, and the opportunity cost of the space, you know, every parking space not only costs a lot of money, adds to the cost of the apartment that it's tied to, but then also that's, you know, two spaces could be a studio apartment. So like, you know, you're often restricting the amount of homes that you can build because you're requiring parking or because of even weird market effects. So when Portland kicked in and added their parking requirements back in 2013, um, prior to that, you know, we saw like on division street, a lot like 55, 60 unit apartments being built. And then because, and then all of a sudden, Oh, well, the parking requirements didn't kick in until 30 units. So that uh, 31 units. So then all of a sudden there were a bunch of 30 unit apartment being, being built. And so you figure not everyone would have been 55 homes, but you know, we lost five to 15 homes probably in every one of those apartments that was built for no good reason. They still didn't build parking, but they didn't get, you know, you didn't get that housing supply. So then you're reducing your supply and raising the cost of the existing supply. So I think for anyone who's interested in housing, that dichotomy, and then the other aspect is every parking space you build is a commitment. Well, it's an invitation to a car to be in your community for 30 to 50 years, right? It's a, it's a, it's a commitment to doing nothing about climate change, right? Like every, every parking space, a structured parking space is like that's you're building a concrete thing with one purpose, drive, drive. Like I want you to drive. I want you to drive to my neighborhood. So if I build a hundred park apartments on the corner near your house, you might be mad if I didn't build parking, but if I did build a hundred, what do you want me to build a hundred parking spaces there? Cause then every day at 10 o'clock or eight, sorry, eight o'clock, you know, it's pandemic thinking now this, you know, bankers out uh, every day at eight o'clock, you know, hundred cars are coming out while your kid's trying to walk to school or, you know, you're walking the dog or you're trying to drive to your job. All of a sudden there's a hundred other people there competing with you for that road space, which doesn't grow. Right. I mean, that's Jarrett Walker here in town, you know, talk, you know like the, the geometry, like you can't, you can only fit so much cars in a space. And so there's just, it doesn't make sense to add parking with every apartment. You, you know, what they're really saying is I'd rather have cars than people, but I don't actually, it's really, I don't want people at all because they bring cars. And I think like, it's like, you know, we have to, we have to short circuit this somehow. And I think manage on street parking and don't require people to build it. Some apartments will still build parking and that's fine. And they'll charge for it, but like getting the amount that's built less. Cause really, when I think about like climate change, it's like, I don't want to see those spaces built. There's a, a, a drag and, and, a, and it makes you make every harder to meet any goal we have, you know, every space we have. So if they're an environmentalist or they care about housing or traffic, you should be able to kind of at least get them to pause. You know, I found people don't come become a shoopista, but they might, you know, like it's a little bit harder to get really mad when they realize how much it costs and how much space it takes up. Right. Like if, if basically it's like, well, if they, if it would be even more expensive if they were able to park their car there and let's say that there are 10 people in that building who don't have cars, maybe if they, you know, they would have, they, people with cars would have moved in if there was, you know, anyway. Well, and they think that they're going to tell you it's a canned out to the builder, to the develop the developer, right. To the person, to the people who build things for people to live in, uh, it's a handout to them. And I mean, 
it, on the margins, it might, you know, increase some amount, but it also sets a floor, right? Like, I mean, if you have an apartment that has that parking attached to it, in a high time, they might be able to charge more more rent. But in a low time, you know, when if there is ever a time when housing prices come down, you know, there's kind of a floor of what they got to pay to pay off that mortgage. Or, the, or what really happens is they won't build, if they can't get the rents, they won't build the housing. And so that's, you know, how we, you know, end up in a, in a, bigger problem. And, and I also think there's, there's ways to combat that, which is if the, the developer, the, the builder can't just, you know, dump the problem onto the neighborhood street if the on-street neighborhood parking isn't free. Um, so have a permit, you know, you should have, if you're worried about people parking in your neighborhood, ask the city to have a market rate permit. All right. Well, that's, I mean, that's one of the spray and because the amount of money that, that you don't have to make it that expensive in order to make it a little bit easier, right? For people to manage their parking, it sounds like is what you're right. saying. Right. I mean, it might not be $300. It might, you know, might be, might, you know, maybe it's $15 a month, who knows? And then, you know, then you're trying to use that money, as I mentioned before, in a way to like a virtuous cycle to, you know, try and, and reduce the, the requirement. Another thing I think is worth always remembering, I have a big bold note here, is ending these mandates for costly car parking, you know, um, doesn't make, and, and, and ending subsidized free parking on the street doesn't make parking just like vanish, right? Like there's still a lot of parking, like there's three to four, who knows more. I mean, depending on what city you're in, like, you know, sometimes there's a lot of parking per car already existing in the city. And so like, just because a new building's going in without parking doesn't mean like every other household. I mean, look at your neighbor's yard. Who's using their driveway? Who's using their garage? Who's, you know, like, there, so there's a lot. Who, who has an extra car parked or a boat parked on the street that they're never using? So I think like starting to think about like how, you know, I think I think we can fit more people in most of the time. And, and you know, and, and hopefully they won't, you know, all bring their cars eventually. Well, I mean, right, like if there are enough of us, then there are going to be more ways to move us all around efficiently, right? More right. bike share, more scooters, more bus service. That's the idea. Yeah, your first question, right, or one of your first questions was like, how do you convince the mobility activists? And I, I didn't even think that to bring up that point, another Jarrett Walker kind of thing, but like, you know, like that density is what supports the transit network. So if you want good transit, you, you know, people often say, well, we can't remove these parking requirements until we have good transit. It's like, you got it. There's this, you got it's the other way around. There's a, um, you know, transit oriented development is often mentioned TOD, but then there's this idea of like development oriented towards transit, you know, which is kind of a, a different way to look at it. If you build, if you build to support the transit, then you can get the transit rather than concentrating all of your housing near a light rail station you know, which yeah. is fine to build housing near a light rail station, but we don't only need to build housing near light rail stations. For most of my career, I've worked in higher ed and I've worked on campuses where, and, you know, as a, as an undergrad or as a grad student and as an employee, I haven't had an expectation of being able to drive to work and then park for free. If I, I know that if I'm driving, I'm going to be paying a lot. So I'm trying not to do it, but I'm also working places where there's so many people going there that buses go there too. Right. So I'd have to drive if that wasn't the case, but um, actually that's not true. I, for a year I worked, I was living in Chapel Hill and I worked at Duke and it would have been like 
an hour and a half kind of bus ride kind of thing. And it was a 30, you know, but that wasn't anyway, but otherwise, you know, generally I've worked in places that are essentially destinations. So I, you know, um, yeah, so there, I, I haven't had sort of that entitlement, that sense that I should be able to drive to work and park for free. But on the other hand, I've heard people say, students say things like, I'm paying this university so much, I should be, be yeah, I should be able to park here for free. And I feel bad for them because they are paying a lot of money, you know, so it's, right. it's just a really different way of thinking about you know, how you get around and you're still paying for a transit pass. It's just a little bit cheaper or you're still, yeah. So if it was free to take the bus, then like it is for example, for high school students in Portland or whatever, it becomes, I don't know, a lot more compelling, I guess. Well, and I think that, I mean, that's interesting that you mentioned that specific example, because there's always like a seemingly circulating viral tweet about like that, that exact thing. Why do I, I, like, it's crazy. It should be criminal for universities to pay for parking. And I think you just have to, you know, kind of use the um, categorical imperative kind of thinking of like, you know, if you, you know, who's going to pay for your university? Do you want your, I mean, universities actually do spend a lot on parking, but I mean, like, (laughs) you know, they, they can spend, you can spend unlimited amounts on it. And, and is that where you want your, your, your money to go rather than to instruction? I mean, and I, I think also, you know, parking is one of even, even the amount that universities spend on it. I mean, like universities spend money on a lot of things that aren't education related that they could be. Um, yes, they do. That's yes, a whole do. nother podcast, yeah, a, really, you know, that is, <laughs> yeah. but, but it's, it's, you know, I think like when I, I bet that person doesn't recognize, you know, like what the value of that space is, you know, like that space, you know, costs, if it's a parking garage, it costs, if it's an old one, maybe it was 30,000, but you're building, building new parking spaces is, you know, hard to do without, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. So, um, well, and campuses are, are often, I mean, not always, but are often that perfect example of so many people needing to get there that lots of bus lines and lots of trains can, you know, I mean, it might, you know, lots, all the buses and trains go through downtown in Portland, right? Cause lots of mm-hmm. people want to get there. So, right. Um, yeah, well, Thanks for all the work you're doing on this issue and for coming and chatting with us about it tonight. I have the links that you sent me before. Where can people find you on Twitter if they want to follow you? Uh, uh, at TWJPDX23 is my uh, Twitter handle. And uh, I also tweet out at the at parking underscore reform, which is the Parking Reform Network's uh, Twitter and we will link to that. And then we have some links to the parking reform website and I'll link to a few of the articles, the sightline series that you sent on parking yeah, that's a great one. and then from Vox, why free parking is bad for everyone. And then to, um, I'll link to, uh, the high cost of free parking, the, th- the meta filter thread that started it all. It, it, it did. It's a, uh, you know, that's, you never know when you're going to find your calling, you know, it's just yeah. something gets you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Tony. Thank you for joining us today. Absolutely. It's great to see you. Yeah, yeah, nice I hope to see you too. See you out on the road sometime in the next yeah. weeks. In the world. In the world. Yeah. <laughs> great. Thanks so much. All Bye, right. Tony. Thank you. <laughs> Bye-bye. Well, you know, we filled up a good amount of time 
we don't really have anything else. <laughs> we don't have any mail. I don't have any. Uh, I have some headlines, but just the things that that Tony shared with us. Right on. Yeah. Oh, it's you know what people don't yeah. want to listen to a milk toast podcast. They want it's, it's passion. True. They want excitement. They it's want. True. They want a cage fight. <laughs> Destroy your local parking not, garage. No, don't do yeah, that. Don't yeah. do that. Don't do that. We're not going to give them a cage. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, maybe. Hmm. If somebody wants to try to figure out how many bikes they can fit in a parking spot, they can take a picture of it and send it to us at the Sprocket Podcast at gmail.com. Oh, yeah. Yes. Let's see how many bikes we can fit in a parking structure. <laughs> That's the- in a parking structure. Yeah. Oh, well, that's, that takes a lot more time. Exactly. That takes a lot more time than a parking spot. <laughs> Why don't we do that? And then we'll go and we'll record a podcast episode live from there. there. <laughs> we'll be like, oh, and now they're up to bikes in there. Now they're up to 200. <laughs> <laughs> and it's two hours later. <laughs> Lots of bikes here, folks. <laughs> and then, and then we'll have to ask everybody to leave because. And come back in because we lost count. <laughs> start over. Start over. <laughs> start over. Do over. Do over. <laughs> Someone didn't click the clicker right. a couple times. The Sprocket Podcast is produced at home. Our website is... No, wait. It's you, Joan. Sorry. Our website is thesprocketpodcast.com. Email to thesprocketpodcast at gmail.com. Call or text to 503-847-9774. Twitter and Instagram at Sprocket Podcast. Thanks to Ryan J. Lane for our theme music. Hertford for our headline sounder. Marcus Norman for graphic design. And thanks to the generous support of our Patreon supporters and listeners. Shadowfoot, Wayne Norman, Cameron Lean. Richard Wazinski, Tim Mooney, Glenn Kubish. Eric Wise, Doug Cohen-Miller, Chris Smith. Caleb Jenkinson, A.P. Cooley. Peanut Butter Jar Matt. Marco Lowe, Rich Otterstrom, Drew the Welder. Anna, who's out in Tulsa right now. Andre Johnson, Richard G. Guthrie Straw, Aaron Green, author of We Were Like Sons and founder of the Regrainery. Ooh, I got a cool Regrainery sticker too this weekend. (laughs) Campsite, Mac Nurse David, Jeremy Kitchen. David Belay, Tim Coleman, Harry Hugel. E.J. Fitternan, Brad Hipwell, Thomas Skato. Keith Hutchison, Ranger Tom, Joyce Wilson. Ryan Tam, Jason Oftenberg, David Moore, Todd Grosbeck. Chris Barron. Chris Barron. <laughs> Chris Barron. Hey, one for each of us. Chris Barron. <laughs> Sean Baird. Simon Pace, Gregory Braithwaite. Dude Luna, who's right there on my screen. Emma Rooks, Philip M. 
Spartan Dale, Mr. T, who never really left. Like initiative key went off. Sarah G. Adam D, go dig a hole. That's Hammond. Greg Murphy, Myra Martinez, Oso. Isaac again. Byron Patterson, Kirsten Graham. Aaron G, Rachel Moline, Jimmy Vesal. And our newest sponsor, Chris Barnett. And thanks to our former supporters who helped us along the way. Now, uh, wear your helmet if you want. Are we still doing this? <laughs> wear your high-vis clothing if you want. We need to mix this up. But... We never rewrote it. <laughs> wear your high-vis clothing if you want. Wear your retro reflectors. Now, uh, wash your hands, wear your mask. <laughs> your mask. I don't care what the CDC says, I'm a two mask for life. <laughs> and ride your bike, ride your bike. Ride your bike. <laughs> <laughs>